0: And I want to introduce um, the series with the verse that inspires it. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And my message outline, just so you know, is uh, I want to unpack this verse and then I want to speak about four things that are not your purpose. Four things that are not your purpose. So here's the verse that inspires this series. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I'll read it again. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I just want to draw out two insights. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, you really should consider memorizing scripture, and I'd put this in the top ten most important scriptures to memorize. Notice two things from this, this verse. Number one, God does a work in us. God does a work in us. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. In our culture, uh, we make quite a fuss about being a self-made person. You know, a person who's born in rags and somehow pulls themselves together and they rise to riches. We go, wow, that, she is a self-made purpose. Pur- purpose, person, not purpose. But this passage says that there's something better than being a self-made person. It's being a God-made person. And uh, so, you know, there are two creations, two creations. First, God creates us at the moment of our birth. You know, he knitted to us together in our mother's womb. There's a, there's a destiny over our lives. and uh, We're not an accident. There's an intentionality in our existence. But secondly, He recreates us at the moment of our new birth. At the moment of our new birth. New birth, by the way, is language Jesus introduced... the experience of salvation, the experience of breathing in heaven's air, the experience of being forgiven by God, being reconciled to God, becoming a child of God. And I love this verse, we are his handiwork. Literally, we are the work of his hands. Other translations have it, we are his workmanship, we are his masterpiece. Uh, In fact, the Greek word there is poema, which is the root of the English word for poetry. We're a work of art. So God does a work in us, but secondly, God does a work through us, because the verse carries on, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And back to the metaphor of poetry, first he writes something in us, and then he writes something through us. He writes something into our lives. He writes something through our lives. Last year we were going through 2 Corinthians uh, for about 6 months. And we came to that beautiful passage where the picture of Christian ministry that that the Apostle Paul gives is of being a pen with the Holy Spirit as the ink in the hands of God. Doing ministry, writing something into the situation we find ourselves in, the lives of people around us. There are good works prepared in advance for us to do. There are things he wants us each to get done that sync up perfectly with the place we live, the people we live among, the gifts we have, the challenges and opportunities of the era that we live in. So that's the first thing. This beautiful verse to inspire the series. There are good works prepared in advance for us to do. It's one of those destiny verses. You have a destiny. You don't create your destiny, you discern your destiny. God is the creator of destiny. Okay, now I move to the part of my message where I want to speak about four unworthy purposes. Because in the coming weeks we're going to speak about the five purposes that God has for every one of His children. And for every church. Uh, But I thought it would be good for us to introduce, well let's clarify what our purpose definitely is not. Now, finding a God-given purpose is like uh, being a stray planet going through the universe and finding a magnificent star to orbit around, a star that gives it light and heat, the stable reference point around which to orbit, giving us meaning, uh, catapulting us. The thing about the human experience is that in our culture we make a lot about being autonomous, being a free person. Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tells me what to believe. The reality is, we actually all tend to find something to gravitate around. There are things in the world that seem to promise us something, and then we orbit our lives around it, and very often they're disappointing. Instead of finding this magnificent star to orbit around, many of us get sucked into a black hole. You know what a black hole is? A black hole is this huge imploded star that has got so much mass that instead of emitting light and energy, it becomes a vacuum. Uh, For light and for matter so that everything around it actually gets sucked into. Instead of giving life, it drains life. And I want to propose that there are four black holes that people, that entire families, in fact entire cultures can easily be drawn into. So in my message I want to mention these four black holes. The first one is self-magnification. Self-magnification. See, we live... In a narcissistic age. We live in a narcissistic age. When we ask the question, what is the best way to live? Western culture in recent decades has offered up the lamest answer of all <laughs> live for yourself, for your fame, your success, your unhindered autonomy. This is the hyper individualism that has sideswiped the insta generation. And I'll compare. This, um, live for yourself with these words by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and who was raised again. Talk about getting rescued from a black hole of self-centeredness and orbiting around a magnificent, life-giving, energy-giving, center for our lives famous book, one of the most successful Christian books, uh, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren who leads that big church in California called Saddleback, I've visited a few times the opening line of this best selling book is, it's not about you, <laughs> quite, quite captivating, it's not about you, as a parent trying to raise five kids, Julie and I realized that we need to pound into the psyche of our children this message you're not the center of the universe. <laughs> Having um, some siblings, they kind of figure this out on their own. You're not the center of the universe. This is part of the effort to mature them so that they will thrive in their life. As long as they believe that they are the center of the universe, they're going to be uh, you know, rubbing up against reality. Life's going to be much harder. And yet what we find is while we try to parent our kids, our culture is committed to reversing whatever maturity parents like me are trying to invest in our kids mean the word selfie only recently came into the English language. In a narcissistic age we cannot afford uh, to project anything less than awesomeness. The average 20-something will take and publicize more pictures of themselves in a month than there were sculptures and paintings done of Augustus Caesar in the entire time of his reign. And and what we do, uh, and this is why, you know, social media is affecting the mental health of young people especially, but it affects everyone, not just teenagers, is you put up a post and you watch it to see if there are likes that come. And if you realize, oh my gosh, people are not liking this, remove. This presents badly. Now compare that with what the wise people have been saying for centuries. In fact, up until a few decades ago, uh, all the sages were, were agreed. Never receive admiration from people that you didn't deserve. <laughs> that wasn't based on your, your, your life experience forged character. There wasn't a based on true achievements. Thomas Merton, he, he said this, the self-centered approach to life puts you on the doorsteps of hell. <laughs> And yet our culture is very insistent on taking us right there to this black hole of self-magnification. So that's not your purpose. You know what else is not your purpose? The second black hole I want to speak about is material accumulation. Material accumulation. We don't only live in a narcissistic age. We live in a consumerist age that is bent on the accumulation of money and possessions. We are infected by affluenza. (laughs) We believe that if we have enough money and things, then we will be enough. We imagine that our net worth is a measure of our self-worth. And yet sadly, some people believe this lie all their lives and realize the lie too late. This lie that drives our quest for more, more, more. See, as our final breath approaches, we come to the end of our lives things become very clear. All of our comforts and our cars, our homes and our hedge funds turn to dust in our hands. Rockefeller, once the most wealthy person in the world, when he died, someone asked his accountant, how much did he leave behind? The accountant looked at him quizzically and said, all of it. (laughs) If you can't take it with you, and it never really satisfies something deep within you, Then why live as though having more of it and keeping what you have got is the end all and the be all of your fleeting life. Now listen to Jesus' wisdom. Luke chapter 12. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of coveting. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. Last year I went on a surf trip to the trans sky with a bunch of friends. And uh, we met um, this Californian couple. And they, they made it big. They came from L.A. They were, um, they, they were tech, techies that had, had basically made a lot of money and decided to sell everything and, uh, and take the money and then travel the world. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, wow. And I said, you know, do a lot of people do that? They said hardly any of their friends have had this idea. And then they started to tell us about their wealthy friends that they'd spent the last many decades of their life what a sad existence these, these people had. They'd made so much money, and once they'd paid off their home, firstly, they're working 16 hours a day. They have maybe one or two weeks holiday a year. And uh, once they paid off their home, they immediately buy a holiday home, which they then go to you know, for one or two weeks a year. And they said that as the years have marched on, many of their friends have had heart attacks or have burnt out and are now a fraction of the vitality they once were as a person. And, uh, and they decided to get out of this. And I tell the story not to type world travel as the meaning of life, because I don't think world travel is the meaning of life. But I want to illustrate that the world's most intelligent people are actually no more intelligent often than the lab rat dedicated to putting in the hours on the treadmill in reward for more cheese, and far more cheese than you could possibly eat. So the first black hole, self-magnification second black hole material accumulation the third black hole i propose is perpetual productivity perpetual productivity i remember hearing the story of a husband driving a wife to a friend and this was back in the day before you had gps and uh you know someone on your phone to tell you where to go and uh and his wife says hey why don't you stop and ask for directions? And he just puts his foot on the pedal. And then she asks him again a few minutes later. And, he, and then he stops and goes, you know, you're insulting me. But at least give me this credit. I might be lost, but I'm making good time. <laughs> we live in a frenetic age. Not just a narcissistic age. Not just a consumeristic age. But a frenetic age. I mean, to be fair, COVID has slowed us down. I think this would be seen as one of the, blessing, the surprise blessings that came with COVID. But in our culture, with the rise of productivity apps and our caffeinated capacity to plow through daily to-do lists, we run a new risk. We're making great time, but we're hopelessly lost. We think, hey, I'm busy, so that my life must be you know, on track. I'm getting a lot done. I must be on track. And you listen to the psalmist in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders Labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for God grants sleep to those he loves. Now, this passage does not say that we need to do nothing but sleep and God will do it all. Rather, it means that we are measured in what we do, that we take the time to make sure that we act in line with God's purposes. And in partnership with God's power. I'm not saying there are not things to do. I mean there are plenty of things that you will need to do. There are good works prepared in advance for you to do. Listen to how Galatians chapter 6 in the message puts this. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given. And then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. It's a cool verse, eh? Galatians chapter 6 in the message if ever you want to look for it. But beware of doing the things that don't need to be done. If I can just for a moment take off my pastor's hat and put on a self-help guru hat. Just oblige me for a minute. The Chinese inventor Lin Yutang writes, Besides the noble art of getting things done, there is the noble art of leaving things undone. The wisdom of life consists in the elimination of non-essentials. It's a myth that one day we can organize our lives and finally be on top of all the things that need to be done. It's a myth. We will never get there. In fact, the more productive you become, the more work tends to come to you. It's one of the secrets of life is learning to cope with, to be very careful about what you leave undone and to, and to accept that. Nothing is less productive than to make more efficient what should not be done at all, says, the, says Peter Drucker. But the first hard work that we've got to do is to think clearly about what you want to accomplish. That's your mission, your purpose. Why you want to accomplish, that's your motivation. And how you plan on doing so, that's your strategy. See, when we're stuck, we often assume that we lack drive. In reality, most times we lack clarity. I mean, ask our signal leaders. We're so passionate about clarity. We took a half day in the middle of the hottest city on planet Earth yesterday to arrive at clarity. And you can just ask us. It feels fantastic to be more clear. You may have heard of Pareto's 80-20 principle. 20% of our activities produce 80% of our desired results. While 80% of our activity activities yield the other 20%. The irony is usually it takes no more effort to do work on high impact activities than it does to do work on low impact ones. And my last bit of self-help here, James Clear advises this. He says, make a list of the 10 things you spend the most time on. Secondly, circle the two that truly drive your results and do more of those. Third, look at the eight other things and eliminate them ruthlessly or automate or outsource them. Or press pause on them. The point is we need to be focused on what God's called us to. And eliminate non-essentials. Proverbs 15 verse 21. Whoever has understanding keeps a straight course. So we've got three black holes so far. The black hole of self-magnification. The black hole of material accumulation. And the black hole of perpetual productivity. As though just being busy means we're on track. There's one more black hole. It's the approval Of others, the approval of others. Now, we do need encouragement. We do need affirmation. I mean, there are many scriptures that speak about the importance of encouraging each other. So I'm not saying that you won't need some people to say, well done. But the moment we make it our goal to find affirmation from all people in general, or the wrong group of people, we're in trouble. One philosopher says these words, The approval of others matters to us because we are afflicted by an uncertainty as to our own value. As a result, we tend to allow others' appraisals to play a determining role in how we see ourselves. Our sense of identity is held captive by the judgments of those that we live among. See, without a purpose, we let any and every person evaluate us... And their evaluation of us really matters to us. Instead of learning to become the person we were born to be, we become the person that fetches the most likes. I mean, that's one of the terrible things about that like thing on social media. We become like Pavlov's dogs. We jump at the smallest morsels of praise that people who don't even care about us are willing to feed us. But listen to the Apostle Paul. Once again, he says this in Galatians 1 verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Galatians 1 verse 10. See, one of the goals of personal maturity, spiritual maturity, is learning to make choices... Unrelated to the negative feedback of the critics and unrelated to the praise from fans. (laughs) This is the problem with people pleasing. Whoever we give the power to validate us, we unwittingly give the power to invalidate us. Hmm. This is one of the painful things of a relationship that goes wrong. (laughs) You Fall in love with someone. This person becomes the center of your universe. And your life begins to orbit around them. That's a a dangerous thing. And then they, they reject you. They dump you. And it's not just the pain of loss. It's the devastation to the ego. Because you've given this person the power to validate you in the first place. Which is where things went wrong. That guaranteed the agony that you're now experiencing. See, when we place too much weight on another person's view of us, we live a very fragile life. On the day they approve of us, we might shoot to the moon with bliss. But the very next day, they change their view of us and we come tumbling down, shattered. Anyway, people-pleasing is an impossible task. There will always be some people we cannot please at all. Or as they say, haters are going to hate. There will always be some people who we can please all the time. And psychophants are going to praise. But we certainly cannot please all people all of the time so it's not self-magnification it's not material accumulation it's not perpetual productivity it's not the approval of others what is our purpose and in this series we're proposing that it's like a five-lane road imagine a highway and there's five lanes every one of god's children every church God's Word clearly defines His purpose for us. And once we understand His purpose for us as it's revealed to us in Scripture, then we find our own unique path. You see, we go too fast. We go, what's my unique purpose? And we're looking for our unique purpose before we settled into the revealed purpose for every one of God's children. And I want to propose that as we go through the series... That as we discover God's revealed purpose for all of us, we're far more likely to tap into our unique purpose within that. there 's a five-lane highway is a lot of space. But there's a unique path in that five-lane highway for you. Psalm 119, I run in the path of your command, says King David, for you have set my heart free. See, God's purpose is revealed in His Word for every follower of Jesus. And we're going to devote our Sunday messages to discovering in liberating detail the path that God has laid out for all of us. And I pray that if we sit under His Word on this one, that our hearts will be set free. That we'll see the wisdom and the wonder of getting out of bed every day with a bounce in our step, ready to walk out our Bible-revealed purpose. So that if anyone catches us and says, What is your mission? (laughs) We can answer it. But back to the verse that we started with. Notice that knowing our purpose starts with knowing God. See, Ephesians chapter 2, before you get to verse 10, which I read to you, has got verses 8 and 9 that says it's by God's grace that you have been saved, not by your own works. And then it goes on to speak about how God has prepared good works for you to do. So the verse before says you're not saved, you're not accepted by God on the basis of your good works. Your good deeds don't qualify you. Thank goodness your bad deeds don't disqualify you. You accept it on the basis of grace. You accept it on the basis of what Jesus did for us and won for us on the cross. So notice the order. First, we know God by grace. Second, we fulfill our purpose. Knowing God by grace is all of God's work. God has done it all on the cross. We don't earn our salvation we saved on the basis of Jesus' perfect character. Uh, he, is, he represents us. And once we're accepted by grace and we come to know God, God writes something into us, then we begin to fill our purpose. And that does involve our, our participation. See, God first does a work in us and only then He does a work through us. And my prayer for all of us in the next six weeks is that for those of you who have not yet trusted in the grace of God, you will come to do so. I mean, today's a good day, by the way. When's the perfect day to be saved? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. No better day to be saved than today. don't have to wait. I'll pray for you if you're keen. And then for those of you who already are new creations in Christ, I pray that in the coming five weeks, God will continue to work in you and write something into your life in such a way that it leads you to a new work that you do as part of your destiny in the months and the years that follow. I ask us to stand. Let's pray. God, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your grace that works in our lives. Thank you for the work that you do in us. Thank you for the work you promised to do through us. Thank you that you're the purpose-giving God. Jesus, you're not only the creator, you're not only the savior, you're the purpose-giver. You're the one whose blaze opened a trail for us. We want to follow you, Jesus. I mean, you call us to follow you. Come, follow me. There's a dynamic journey. This journey goes somewhere. First, goes to the person. We follow you, Jesus. But then you take us on a path that leads us into the good works you prepared in advance for us to do. <coughs> all, everyone's eyes are closed. Perhaps there's some people here. Today's the day that you want to come right with God. You're sensing the call of God's grace. Uh, you know who you are. God is he's, he's knocking on the door of your heart. I don't have to pray for you. Everyone's eyes are closed. Just lift up your hand if that's you. So that I, that I can pray for you. Just say to God, say, today is the day that you come home to God's grace. So lift up your hand. That's you. That's you. Just pray this prayer. Jesus, I trust in you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you accept me, not because of my good deeds, but because of your grace. I place my life in your hands. I want to know you, Jesus, as my Lord and my Saviour. Just while we're in this quiet place and we can feel this, this wind blowing over our bodies, which is a welcome relief on the hot day, I just have a picture in my mind of Jesus breathing over his disciples. He rises from the dead, if you don't know the story. He finds His disciples in a hot, stuffy room, scared and terrified and small. And He comes to them with the words, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then He breathes over them. So wherever you are, would you receive the breath of the Spirit? You can't fulfill the purpose of God without the Spirit. Let Him just breathe over you. Right now, where you are. Let Him touch you. Let him speak to you. Hebrews chapter twelve says, "Speaks um, about fixing your eyes on Jesus and for the joy before Him, endure the cross." And then it speaks about running with perseverance the race set, marked out before you. And throwing off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles. I just get the, the sense God saying, just get, just let go of the past, the things that have entangled you. The bitternesses, the brokennesses, the discouraging words you've had, the failures of the past. God is giving you a new chance today. This is a new day, a new invitation to run the race, to run in the path of God's commands. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Throw off everything that hinders you. Run the race marked out before you.